It's one of the deepest, richest, most important books of the Bible, Romans. In this message, join Pastor Chris Chadwick and learn more about what the Bible says in the book of Romans. The book of Romans chapter 5. Book of Romans chapter 5. Well, I am. Um, I live in a house now with just me and Debbie. Just me and Debbie. We absolutely love an empty nest. It's probably the best life ever. My daughters aren't in here. I'm looking around, and I know they won't watch this, so I can say whatever I want unless you tell them. So please do me a favor and don't, or I'll preach three hours next week. So, um, but uh, Debbie and I love it. But growing up, when when we were younger, married, and through life, we absolutely had a wonderful time with our daughters and a wonderful life experience with them. And some of the great joys of life as a parent are the joys of being able to teach your kids like uh, swimming. I, I, I guess I'm all the only one in here. Everybody else is like, oh, that's a joy. Yeah, this is how my dad taught me how to swim. This is how he did. He threw me in. He's like, now listen, don't sink. So he threw me in and I fought to stay on the top and all of that. And my dad was one that was given to a different manner of life of, uh, than just constant encouragement, though he was certainly and is certainly an encourager. Uh, he was like, son, you're going to sink or swim. I hope that you swim, but if you sink, we know where to get more of you, so you got to learn. And so that's kind of a little bit of the parenting style I had with Judith and Natalie. Like, hey, when we get to a pool or a lake or whatever, make sure it's deep enough and then just jump in. And we had a lot of fun doing that. My wife, on the other hand, and I asked her if I could share this illustration telepathically about two seconds ago. And, and I'm thinking she said yes, but my wife uh, does not like anything cold. I don't know anybody else in here like that. Like, I don't want anything cold. She doesn't like cold showers. She doesn't like cold weather. She doesn't like cold attitude. She doesn't like the cold shoulder. Nothing. She doesn't like anything cold. And she invariably views all water as cold. So my wife sometimes will stand on the edge of the pool, even now when we're in Hawaii, and she has to psych herself up to jump in. And more than a few times, she stood on the edge of the pool and done one of these bits, one, two, oh, I can't do it. And we've gone through and it's a point of great humor in our family and we have no problem calling out the wonderful nature of Debbie when she does that and we like to have fun with it and all of that. Well, our text this morning is a little bit like that for me. Uh, there's really just no way around getting to it other than truly just to jump in. Well, why? Well, Romans chapter 5, verse number 12, is really quite clear. It's about the subject of death. I mean, last week we talked about life, resurrection, but today it's about death. Why? Well, because it's the next passage in the text. You say, well, don't you have other topics you could preach? Oh, there's plenty. And in some ways, there's way more than I, other things that I'd rather say. But almost 20 years ago, when we started Canyon Ridge Baptist Church, we made a commitment that we have not yet broken, and that commitment is this, that we'll not overlook a passage of Scripture simply because it's difficult. It's not in our nature to do that. If the scripture says, says it, if God speaks to us in it, that's what we're going to look at. So that's what we'll do today, the subject of death. Death is a great enemy to all mankind, a great enemy indeed. Uh, when I was around four or five years old, I attended my very first funeral service. It was, um, I have a picture of the, the church building we were at. That was the church building that it was, the Church of the Holy Rosary, a Catholic church built by Germans in the 1800s. And um, my mother's grandmother, my mom's grandmother, so my great-grandmother on my, on her dad's side passed away and the funeral was in that church building. 
Gardens, right where the funeral was. And it was, as a kid, a huge church near downtown Tacoma, Tacoma, Washington, and German-built Catholic church. It was packed. It was large. A lot of things went on. And there was my, in the, we, there was a huge number of people on the outside of this building uh, when my grandmother died. She was very well known in the German community there. And uh, probably 2,000 people outside, as my mind remembers it, and probably 1,000 people inside. And we were allowed inside because we were family. And I remember sitting there, it was my dad on the aisle, then my mom, and then me, and then my brother, and on the outside was my sister. And it was really, if you will, the first time in my life that I was, that I can remember being acquainted with death. First time in my life I can remember. Again, I was four or five years old, somewhere in that ballpark. I wasn't exactly sure everything that was going on, but this is what I understood when we left that church building and that service. What I understood was this, that my grandmother or great-grandmother was not here anymore, and I would never see her again. I'd never go to what we used to call the old folks' home and sit in her room and visit with her. She was a bigger German lady. Uh, you can kind of see a resemblance here. It skipped a couple generations, and I picked up some of those traits. She was a bigger German lady. I'd, I'd never see her again. I'd never hear her accented conversations. I'd never hear her laugh again. And I'd, I'd never understood that before. I'm sure that as a younger child, I had seen maybe some uh, death and people had died, no doubt about it. And three or four years, people we knew, I'm sure died, but I, I wasn't aware of what that meant. And I can remember, I was distinctly thinking about this while I was studying. I can remember back to being a kid and the events of that day. Why? It's a pretty memorable time the first time you really are confronted with death. Well, since being a pastor, I've been confronted with it now many, many times, far too many times, if I'm being honest with you. It's not something that I enjoy. It's not something that I find pleasure in. And this year, just a couple of months ago, a lady, that lifelong friend of my wife's, suddenly passed away. Found out she had cancer. They told her she had six months and about three or four weeks later, she passed away. It was unexpected. And it happens to all of us. Death is the great equalizer of life. And some of you came like, I want to be encouraged today. This is a bummer. Sorry, it's just what the text is talking about. This is a great equalizer in every area of life. I would like you to notice our text in Romans chapter 5, verse number 12. Wherefore, as by one man's sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Our text starts off with the word wherefore. It's connecting an idea to what happened in the first 11 verses or to what's brought up in the first 11 verses. And we spent two weeks in the first 11 verses studying this on a brief series entitled The Benefits of Justification. And that there's more benefits than just eternal life when it comes to our salvation. Though eternal life is amazing and awesome and wonderful, I mean, come on, there is a whole lot of joy and awesomeness, if that's even a word, when it comes to our justification. It's fantastic. And then Paul is connecting, here's justification, but you've got to understand something here. And he leads into the text, and our text runs through verse number 21. We'll only look through verse number 14 because there's a small break, and it would be a very long message if I preached all of this at one time. But I, w I want to say this. This is one of the more challenging passages in the book of Romans to understand possibly one of the more challenging passages in all of the Bible to understand. 
Matter of fact, it, it can often cause a little bit of confusion on this passage of scripture. So we're not gonna, I didn't want to rush through it. I wanted us to see clearly what this passage is, is talking about. And we see in verse number 12, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, we understand that sin came into the world through Adam. Sin came into the world through Adam. Sin did not originate with Adam, but sin came into the world through Adam. Sin originated with Satan. 1 John chapter 3, verse number 8, the Bible says, He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of Man was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. He that committed sins is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of creation, the beginning of time. John does not tell us exactly when this was, but he makes it clear that it was prior to the creation of the world. The devil sinned before there was a creation of the world. The devil is, a, is the father of sin. Isaiah chapter 14, verse number 12. Isaiah talks about how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into the heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Satan sevens times in his pride says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And then he culminates it with, I will be like God. Verse number 15, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Let me tell you, the father of sin is Satan. He's the originator of sin. He's the one who started it all. And, and, and it comes into the world, though, through Adam, wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world. After God placed Adam in the garden of Edom, Edom Adam was given but one simple uh, restriction. The consequences for disobedience were severe, but it was one simple restriction. And we see it in Genesis chapter two, verse number 16. The Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden, you, freely, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Adam, you can have every tree in this garden. Adam, you can have of every plant in this garden. Everything that is edible in this garden is yours. You can have every kumquat. You can have every mango. You can have every apple. You can have everything that you want. There's only one thing in this entire garden that you cannot have. Well, what's that, Lord? You see that tree over there? Uh, yeah, I see that tree. Don't touch it. Don't eat it. I shouldn't say don't touch it. Don't eat it. For in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. Adam, that's the one restriction I have for you in this entire garden. Do not eat of that tree. Well, God then created Eve, took her out of Adam. She joined him in the garden as his wife, as his helpmeet. And Satan tempted her to doubt the commands of God. Hath God said, you shall not touch this tree? As God said, the day that you touch it, you'll surely die. Satan always twists the commands of God. And Eve said, he said, no, 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 we, we just can't eat of this tree. And Satan brings doubt and to make a long and, uh, and a painful story short, Eve is convinced that she needs to eat of the tree of the garden of the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she takes a bite of that fruit and she gave it, the Bible says, to her husband also with her and he did eat and the eyes of them both were open and they knew the difference for the first time between good and evil. All Adam and Eve had ever known was good. All Adam had ever known was good. He had never seen evil. And though Eve disobeyed first, the primary responsibility or all the responsibility for the sin was Adam's. Why? Why? Because God had directly commanded Adam. 
God had directly commanded Adam. There's zero account that God commanded anything of Eve. God commanded Adam. And secondly, Adam had headship over Eve and and should have insisted on their mutual obedience to God rather than allowing her to lead him into disobedience. He should have required that she obey God. He should have stopped her. He should have said, absolutely not. God has said, we're not gonna touch this. God has said, we're not gonna be a part of this. Adam should have done everything that he could to prevent his wife from sinning. Men, did you hear me? You have headship in your family. If you're a Christian man, God has given you headship and God's given you a responsibility to lead your family for the furtherance of the gospel. And and, and I'm not trying to be down on any of us who are men, but God has called us to lead our families as he would have us to lead and to teach them, uh, our families, the things of God and to protect our families in the ways of God. Well, I don't want to say anything. I I don't want to tell my wife, no, I don't ever want to make her unhappy. I don't want to make her do anything she doesn't want to do. So we're not going to church or we're not doing this or we're not doing that because she's not really for it. Then she has become your God and you have put an idol between you and the Lord. God has called you, men, me, a man, to be the spiritual leader, authority, protector in my home. They say, well, I'm getting what I want. Well, Eve got what she wanted. Let me ask you, how'd that work out for her? How's that working out for you? You say, well, those are dated ideas and this is 2022. You need to get with the times. I might need to get with the times, but let me tell you, you need to get with the joy of the Lord. And God says, this is the way that he instructed the family, that there is a shepherd, a protector, and the husband is the protector. And then you have a responsibility to lead and protect your family. And had Adam done that, imagine how much different our world would be today. Wouldn't that be awesome? Like if you didn't know bad, like if all you knew is good, like if there was no Taco Bell, how much better would our lives be? It's bad. Got rid of everything bad and we only have good. Some of you are like right now, this preaching is bad. I get it. We wouldn't have needed it. Wherefore as by one man, sin entered into the world. And death by sin, for death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The word sinned here means to miss the mark, not to hit the mark, or one who keeps on missing the mark. One who keeps on missing the mark. All have sinned. There's an important understanding that we have to be very careful in this text to help us understand, and you have to understand it, and we're delving into deep water today, okay? I understand that last week was a little bit easier. Today, it's gonna be a little bit deeper and we ought to wanna grow in the depths of the word of God. We ought to wanna have an understanding that's more than just a surface understanding. So let's jump in with, with this reality that all mankind is connected to Adam. Ancient Jews understood well the idea of what we call corporate identity. They never thought of themselves as isolated personalities or a mass of separate individuals who happened to have some of the same bloodlines and families. No, they were all one in their family, in their village, in their community. They were really all the same. And and if you talk to somebody, even from the Middle East today uh, or from Eastern parts of the world, that's still how they view themselves. Debbie and I right now are working on some uh, mission trips for next year for us. We'll be, we believe right now we'll be in Africa next year, Lord willing. And, and in Africa and Southeast Asia, where we probably will be both, both places next year, those folks have a, have a cultural understanding that they are part of a much bigger community than just themselves. Our Western mindset says this, I'm an individual, don't mess with my individual rights. Nothing else matters. I have the right to do what I want. It matters not who it's affect, who it affects. My life doesn't affect anybody. That kind of thinking, if I can be candid with you, is really antithetical to the idea of the scripture. 
I'm not saying it's per se a sin. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that viewing yourself as an individual is a sin. It's just very, very different than the way that the Bible was written and very, very different from the way that our understanding of the culture is in this day. Well, pastor, what then do you mean? They viewed themselves as all part of a, a, a greater whole. E- even the Canaanites, the Edomites, the Egyptians, you could go through and name all of the people in Paul's day. In Paul's day, you would have the Jews, you would have the Gentiles, but the Gentiles would be broken down into different people groups that would be there. And they viewed themselves not as the individual, but as the whole. That was several years ago in the barbershop. I've shared this illustration before, but I'll help illustrate this from a different direction. And if you were at the parade yesterday, you saw me hugging a bunch of Chaldean guys. Those are all my barbers. I mean, and we have a great relationship in there. And I walk in there, it's, it's, it's like a barbershop is supposed to be. There's a lot of arguing going on. There's a lot of yelling in good nature. It's a lot of fun. It's not like one of these beauty shops where you go in and everybody's quiet and nice and you smell cucumber melon. No, you smell dudes and brute when you walk in there. And that's the way it should be. Can I get an amen in the crowd? how boys should be raised. You're not sure if it's a barber shop or a mechanic shop, and you really don't care. You're there for the fun. Your hair looks fine, whatever. And uh, I was in there, and normally it's a very a, a vibrant culture inside that barber shop. And this specific day, it was very, very somber. Through the course of conversation, I asked the guy cutting my hair, his name is Dylan. I said, hey, what's going on? It's really quiet in here. Is everybody okay? I thought maybe there had been like a, a, a big, you know, row or something like that. And he said, oh, pastor, he said, um, ISIS took our, our house today. You live in El Cajon. What do you mean? He said, oh, our, our family house in northern Iraq, they came into our village and they, and they took our house. I said, oh, are your parents okay? He said, yeah, they're, they're okay. They live here. Aunts and uncles, oh, yeah, they live in Germany and one lives in Turkey and some live here throughout the States. And I wasn't understanding. I said, tell me about your house. He said, oh, that house has been in our family for over a thousand years. It's the family home. We're a part of the family home. It's ours. Does he live there? No. Does he own it? No. But it's part of the family. He's part of a much bigger identity. Some of you from different cultures around the world, and and your culture would even be that way. So sometimes people are like, um, if you if you do anything to shame the family name, it will affect every one of us in the family. Where some of us in America raised here, you could have a crazy uncle, and it's no big deal. It doesn't really bring shame on the family. It's like, oh, that's Uncle Festus. He's just an idiot. But in other parts of the world, if Uncle Festus is an idiot, it affects everybody in the community, everybody in the family. And Paul is writing to a group of people that understood something, and this cannot be overlooked theologically. Paul is helping them to understand something. You are not an individual. You are part of the corporate, well, what corporate? Corporate humanity who has Adam as your father. What do you mean? I mean, you're all a part of Adam. I'm a part of Adam. By the way, I I wasn't going to say this, but I feel like it's appropriate. That's one of the reasons it makes things like racism so idiotic. And it doesn't matter what side the racism is. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. If you dislike some other human being because of the color of their skin or the culture you're from, you're idiotic because, and you say, did you call me an idiot? If you believe that, yes. Oh, I'll say it again too. Don't don't get too hot and bothered. We'll come back around to it at some point. Racism is idiotic. Why is it idiotic? Because we're all one in Adam. Well, we're different than them. Yeah, we are different than different cultures and personalities, and they're different from us, and we're different from them. But there, it is foolish at the idea that we who are all one in Adam would dislike somebody else who's part of the same corporate body. We're all one in Adam. And it's essential that we understand that. 
So when the Bible says as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, notice this, and death came into the world, death by sin, death came into the world because of sin. Or in other words, the consequence of sin is death. Adam was not created a mortal being. He was created to live in perfect fellowship with God for all eternity. It was never intended that Adam would die. He was not created a mortal. He was created to live in perfect harmony with God for all eternity. But when he sinned, sinned, there was an immediate death that took place. An immediate death took place. There's three types of death in the Bible. Death means separation, separation from God, separation from man. The, the moment that Adam die, uh, sinned, he died. There's a physical death that we read about in the Bible. Job chapter 14, verse number one says, man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. I mean, do we not see people die far too frequently on a regular basis? I mean, we hate that. There's physical death. There's spiritual death. A spiritual life consists in constant communication with God. So spiritual death is separation from that life. Ephesians chapter two, verse number one, the Bible says, and you have the quickened who are dead in trespasses and sin. Colossians chapter two, verse number 13, and you being dead in your sin and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened or made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, your spiritually dead. And let me say this, you're born spiritually dead. You're born spiritually dead. And then there's eternal death. And this is probably the most humanly speaking, devastating. Revelation chapter 20 and verse number six says, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second resurrection or the second death hath no power. Let me read that correctly. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death, that's another word for eternal, second death, the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20, verse number 14, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Revelation chapter 21, verse number eight, but the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and the sorcerers and the idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What is the second death? It's eternal. Well, how long? For eternity. As long as heaven is awesome, that's how long hell will be hellish and horrible. Well, when do, I, when do I get a chance to get out? You don't. No, there's, there's gotta be another chance. There's not. Today is your chance. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Not next week, not next month. Somebody said one time, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I mean, I, I've talked to thousands of people in my life who say to me, I'm going to accept Jesus next week. I'm going to come to Christ next month. I'll, I'll get saved in a, in a little while. I'll get saved as soon as I, I get done with this school. I'll get saved as, as soon as I get to my new command. I'll get saved when I get settled in at my new position. I'll, I'll get saved after we have our kids. I'll, I'll come to Jesus eventually, Pastor. I'm just not ready to right now. That's your choice. And no one can force anyone to accept Jesus Christ. I wish we could, but no one can force anyone to accept Jesus Christ as their savior. But let me be very, very candid with you. If you die without Jesus Christ, it is a physical death, it's a spiritual death, and it is a horrific eternal death. Matter of fact, that's why the Bible calls it the second death. You died, now you die for eternity. Well, but come on, pastor. I mean, really, doesn't God give us another chance? No. You've got a plethora of chances here and now. Take advantage of that. And this affects not just some people. Look at our text in verse number 12. 
Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. That word all is a common little Greek word, and it means the totality of, or the completion of. So here's what he's saying. For death passed upon every single man, for that all have sinned. Every man who's ever lived, sinner. Every man who's ever been alive, died. Well, pastor, I know about those two guys in the Bible, Enoch and Elijah, they didn't die. Oh, they will one day in the tribulation period. They will, no doubt God took them. They're sinners and they will face death as well during the tribulation period. All men die because of sin. You might ask the question, it's a good question. Well, what about babies? They don't sin. I mean, they don't make the willful choice to do their own thing. Let me say this. That's true. But we don't die because we've sinned. We die because we have a sin nature. A sin nature, what's inside of you. Sin nature is the product of your birth. It's who you are at birth. Just as you inherited things and attributes from your parents, we inherited sin from our fathers. If you look at my dad and you look at me, you're like, oh, that's his dad. I remember one time I was working at Bank of America in Amarillo, Texas, and my boss, who was this wonderful older lady named Lola, she's about 74, she'd been in banking literally till the bank, I mean, when they did everything on a, on a spreadsheet of, of paper, and they had these giant spreadsheets behind the teller windows, and they'd pull those out, and they'd use a pencil to subtract the amount of money. I mean, she'd been in banking a long time, and she uh, had been there. We had a good relationship, and I came in one day, and she said, hey, Chris, I thought I saw you yesterday, and she mentioned the car, and I kind of smiled. She goes, and then I drove up next to it, and I was going to wave, and I looked over. She said, I thought I saw you. All the same mannerisms, all of the same actions. I was watching from behind and I pulled up next to you and it was your dad. Every once in a while, I'll find myself with my arm on the windowsill of my car and my finger against my head while driving just like that. And I always think, man, that's how my dad drives. We inherit things from our parents, do we not? We inherit looks, attitudes, actions, behaviors, mannerisms, preferences. We, we inherit a lot of things from our parents, but you know what you inherit without a doubt that has been passed down to every single person that's ever lived? A sin nature. Which is why, and you inherit it, Romans 5.12, from your father. And if you're a dad, you pass it down to your kids, which is why Jesus was born of a virgin. Matthew chapter one, uh, chapter 1, verse 23 says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. You inherited that sin nature from your father, and it has other implications as well, and maybe primarily for us in the moment is no matter how good you are, you can't change your nature. Everyone who has ever been born other than Jesus was born with a sin nature. And the only way to be reconciled with God is to be forgiven for your sin. You cannot change your nature. I can't change my nature as hard as you try. We like to change our nature though, don't we? You ever been in a room with a bunch of white ladies? Like, like people whose skin are white. You know what they like to do? They like to tan so they look less white. And my wife likes to tan. Some of the rest of you like to tan. Debbie likes to tan. And she likes to go to the tanning booth or salon or whatever it's called, the, the tanning place. You say, well, Pastor, guys do it too. Not this guy. And so you got a little bit of tan. I go outside where real men go. Can I get an amen? My tanning salon is the sun. Debbie pays for it. And she'll go and she'll tan and tan. And I love it. It's beautiful. I love the glow of her skin. I love that. But every once in a while, life gets busy. Life gets hectic. And she just doesn't have the time to go. 
So after a while, I mean, uh, she comes in, you know, and, and uh, she's all golden and everything. And after a while, she turns into the little white girl that I married. Why? She can't change her nature. As hard as she tries. When I go to Southeast Asia, if you land in Southeast Asia, especially at one of the nicer airports like at Nandi in Japan, and you, you walk through there, many of you have done that, you walk through there and you'll see if you have a lot of time. It seems like every time I travel to Asia, I have like a five, six hour layover and they don't provide beds in the airport. I wish they did. Uh, but they don't provide beds. And so you're just kind of walking around. And every time you walk around, I go to like the duty-free places and you'll see in Southeast Asia, all of these lotions that will help whiten your skin. When I travel there with Debbie, I tell her, don't go down that aisle. You've got that one covered. Why is that? We like to change our nature. We like to change how we look. Well, let me tell you, you cannot change your sin nature. And neither can I. I'm no better than you. You're no better than me. We were all born with a sin nature. Every single one of us. As a matter of fact, it's so effective that, that death comes into the world by sin. We can't change our sin nature. And look at verse number 13 and verse number 14 and understand this. Whether you understand the law or not, you can't escape death. Your nature is that that will ultimately bring death in your life. Whether you understand the law or not, you can't escape sin. Look at verse number 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. You see now why this is a hard text. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed. The word imputed simply means to charge, to take into account, to put on the account of, to consider. The prevailing thought among the Jews was that there was no sin without the law and they had a very high view of the law and there was a reverence that they had toward it and it led them to this position of arrogance where they thought they were superior because the law was given to them and not to others because they surmised in keeping the law is the only way man could ever be right with God. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 9, the Bible is really clear here about this idea of the law. Verse number 13, until the law of sin was in the world. Let me pull back a second. Until the law of sin was in the world, but sin was not charged or imputed where there is no law. In other words, let me say it this way. When there was no law, there was no sin put on the account of the people who sinned. Romans chapter 7, verse number 7. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law said thou shalt not covet. But sin, taken occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. In other words, Paul is saying this. He's saying, if you didn't know the law said thou shalt not covet, then you didn't know that lusting was wrong. And lusting is by, by default part of our nature. You, you don't have to teach kids how to lust. It's like... Tomorrow morning, if you have children, let's just see if this works, okay? If you don't believe me, give one of your kids lucky charms and with whole milk, because it tastes good. I like skim milk. Just do water, bro. Just do water. It's nasty as I'll get out. But you give your kids lucky charms with whole milk. And the other kid, you give shredded wheat. Shredded wheat is the curse of, of God on mankind. Say, so what is shredded wheat? It's basically dead grass that you put in a bowl and you eat it. And somebody's like, I like shredded wheat. We should talk. There's hospitals and counseling for people like you. But give one of your kids shredded wheat and skim milk and the other kid Lucky Charms and without ever having to teach your children anything, one of your kids will start coveting the other one's Lucky Charms. 
And they'll start crying. Why can't I have lucky charms? I'm better than he is. They're an idiot. And last night they said bad words about you, mama. I want their lucky charms. And if they're older, when the, the one with the lucky charms turns away, tell the truth. The older kid will take his spoon over there and start eating it until somebody comes in and stops him. Why? Coveting is a natural thing for us to do. I've not known sin except the law said thou shalt not covet. Verse number 14, nevertheless, death reigned. I mean, sin's not being charged to these people's account. From Adam to Moses, sin's not being charged to their account. Nevertheless, even though sin wasn't being charged because no law had been given, people still died. People died between Adam and Moses. Well, why is he saying that? Because a lot of people are of the opinion that the reason you die is because you break the law. And Paul is saying, no, 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 they didn't even have the law. The law wasn't being charged to their account. Nevertheless, they still died. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude or in the same way that Adam had sinned, in the same likeness, in the same resemblance. Death reigned over them, even though they didn't sin after Adam's transgression. Well, what was Adam's transgression? God told Adam not to do something. Adam did exactly what God told him not to do. Adam defied the word of God. He defied it. These people weren't defying the word of God because they had not yet heard the word of God. Now, certainly there were a few prophets, but the vast majority of the people had never heard God's law. They were not, there was no way for them to hear it because God had not yet given it. But they still died. Adam's disobedience was direct rebellion against God. And the people who died between Adam and Moses had not directly rebelled against God. God had not spoken to them. God had not given them his law. Why then did they die? That's the question, and that's the answer. Why did they die? Because of their sin nature. because of their sin nature. It's important to understand, you didn't have to sin to be a sinner. You were born with a sin nature. That's what verse number 12 is all about. By one man, sin came into the world and death by sin. So death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Paul. I'm a pretty good person. I haven't really sinned like that. You have no idea, Paul. I've really kept the law. I've done a great job. I mean, these are the arguments that the people are having. These are the people to whom he is writing. Paul, you have no idea. Come on, I'm doing great. Well, wait a minute. If you have that question, let me tell you this. Um, When the people didn't have the law, their disobedience of the law was not charged against them. They didn't know how they were supposed to act. They didn't know what they were supposed to do. They didn't know what they were supposed to say. They they had no law. It was not imputed. It was not charged to their account. But they still died. Even though they didn't directly rebel against God's word. Even though they, they didn't intentionally violate God's law. They hadn't known God's law. You can't violate what you don't know. Well, why then did they die? Because they have a sin nature. That's why, listen to me, when you stand before God, that's why you don't get a pass because you're like, well, I I just, I, I didn't really believe but I mean, I was sincere in my belief. No, no, you, you don't get a pass that way. Well, I, I didn't think you were serious. No, you have a sin nature. I'm told by scientists who study this that the personality in a child is set by the time they are 36 hours old. In the womb, 36 hours old in the womb. 36 hours after the point of conception that the personality is primarily developed. 36 hours. 
Can I tell you that prior to your personality, your sin nature is established? At the moment of conception. And you can't change that. Well, I'll try to be a pretty good person and let my good works outweigh my bad works. No, bro, you can't change your nature. That's the whole point of this text. You can't change your nature. This is why the first 11 verses, why justification is so powerful because you are by nature a sinner. You have a sin nature and nothing that you do can change your sin nature. The only hope that you and I have is the wonderful grace of Jesus. Jesus is the God of life. Adam was created to fellowship with God forever, but sin separated us from God. And and the obvious and clear evidence of that is death. Death is the final separator from God if a person does not accept Christ as their savior. Death takes hold of everyone. And if you don't know Christ, it ends in eternal death and damnation from God in a place called hell. Not because you've sinned, but because you have a sin nature. Well, why does that matter? Because sometimes people go, I am a really good person. And you know what? I wouldn't argue with that. I don't follow you around, but I'd probably agree with you. But you aren't separated from God simply because you violated, though if you sin in one point of the law, you're guilty of all the Bible says. But even if you were, which you're not, but even if you were, which you're not, but even if you were, which you're not, able to live a perfect life, which you're not able to do, but even if you were, you'd still be separated from God in a place called hell because of your sin nature. It doesn't make me any better than you or you any better than me. We all have that nature. Well, then why can you rejoice when you think about Jesus and eternal life? Well, because Jesus gave us victory over death. Yeah, well, we studied it last week by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He died that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. That's why this is a rejoicing point. Yeah, we're all sinners. Yes, we're all in need of a savior. No, there's nothing you can do to change that. Well, then what do I do? The rest of this paragraph will go on and tell us in weeks to come that the only thing that you can do is accept the, the precious sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin and trust him and him alone as your savior. Because you can't be good enough to earn your way to heaven. That's why we're able to rejoice and say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory through Christ. Do you? Do you have victory over physical, spiritual, eternal death? Are you looking forward to heaven is your home? I mean, do you have victory? Oh, pastor, I'm, I'm, I'm young. Come on. Oh, pastor, I'm a good person. Come on. No, no. Sin nature. All of us have it. Can't escape it no matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you live a perfect life or not. We all have a sin nature. We all suffer the consequence of that. Are you victorious by the blood of Christ? Have you accepted Christ as your savior? Whatever you want to say, are you saved? Have you repented? Here's the big deal. Have you repented and trusted only Jesus to save you? See, men don't die because they sin. They die because they have a sin nature. This reality makes the need for the gospel absolute. Men die because they have a sin nature. So I thought they died because they sin. No, you die because you have a sin nature. 
You sin because you have a sin nature. Everyone in this room is a sinner. But even if you had never sinned, you'd still die and spend eternity separated from God. Why? Because of your sin nature. Now, we've all sinned. We know that. But Paul is dealing on a much deeper level that even if in some way you thought you were capable of living a perfect life, it still doesn't give you an out because you're not saved by your perfection. You're not saved by your performance. The only means of salvation is by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you can't run from your nature, physical or spiritual. And we're born sinners. We don't die because we sin. We die because we have a sin nature. That's why the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, I love this. It makes the ground level at the cross. Some people come to me and they say, you don't know what I've done. Well, no, no, you have a sin nature. Jesus took care of that. You don't know how bad my sin is. No, no, you don't understand. Jesus took care of that. I've done things so bad, nobody could forgive it. No, it was already forgiven on the cross of Calvary for your sin. He took care of your nature. It's all the same. Jesus can forgive and will forgive anyone who will come to him. Have you come to him? Do you know that if you die today, you have eternal life? If not, you need to repent of your sin. Ask God to forgive you of your sin and invite Jesus to come into your heart and to be your savior. How do you do that? By praying a prayer like this that has to be sincere from your heart. Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And the best I know how, I ask you to come into my heart and to save me. In childlike faith, I accept you. You say, is that all there is to it? Well, the words aren't magic. You say the words all day long, they'll mean nothing. But when it becomes the cry of your heart, that's when salvation happens. Well, don't, don't, I, don't I have to confess it to somebody? No, no, you go to Jesus for that. Don't I have to do some good things and get baptized? No, no, Jesus took care of all of that. Isn't there something that I have to do, Pastor? No, Jesus took care of all of it. And he continues to take care of all of it if you'll put your faith and trust in only him. Yep. The absolute need for the gospel. I absolutely need it. And you absolutely need it. All of us do. Because we have a sin nature. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages today at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time.